All right. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. I was born and raised in 3HO, and I've started this podcast and have come together with uh, 11 intentions, and I'll share them with you. Um, number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor everybody that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other support and therapy as needed, draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. So today I wanna to welcome our guest. Um, her name is Sirigi Lomenzo, born Siri Sunderta Carr Kulsa in 1976 in Hartford, Connecticut. Most of her family on her mom's side are all in 3HO. Uh, grandma, three aunts, and lots of cousins. She has two older sisters who were also born and raised in 3HO and swapped, sent to India, etc. She was sent to India in 1983 at age seven, went to GNFC and GRD, came home in 1991, she did all of the usual 3HO things like children's camp, India, et cetera. And she never felt any connection to 3HO and never got into doing yoga or meditation. She removed herself as best that she could after finishing high school in Española and has been open about her negative experiences in India and with 3HO for as long as she can even remember. 
She spent many, many years unraveling the trauma of the 3HO upbringing and the effects it's had on her life and who she is today. So I wanna welcome Sirji. Thank you for being here today. Hello. Hello. Hi, everybody. thank you. <laughs> welcome, thanks for thank having me. Thank you so much. Um, I want to, first of all, just acknowledge how long you've been speaking out about um, your personal trauma, but also specific uh, systemic trauma in 3HO from your lens and your sisters have been very vocal. So rather than say, why do you feel it's important is kind of how do you feel about speaking out now compared to how it's been about speaking out all these years? I think it's just, it's just even more important now because A, people are starting to listen a little bit more and there's more and more information that's more widely known that uh, around everything that is really important to hear, for everybody to hear and to understand that, that this organization was and is um, extremely damaging to its members and particularly its children. And we are its children, so we, we have experienced it all, especially those of us born in the seventies, you know, we've been there through it all. We didn't know any of this stuff that we're all learning now either. So, but now we are learning. And so now we have an opportunity to, to speak about it. Honestly, that's the big thing. Let's be honest with it. Let's call it what it is. Let's use the right terms, use the right words to speak about Yogi Bhajan and 3HO and everything that's happened um, since the beginning with him and with other members and our parents and all of it, um, you know, and, and hopefully more people will start to recognize those truths and start to, to make decisions for themselves on, on what they want to align themselves with in their lives. And in my opinion, 3HO is not something to align yourself with in any way, shape or form. Um, now you left, you were a teenager in 1991 and that's when you left to like, you started well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I was always kind of left <laughs> like that's kind of how I always felt about it. But I always, you know, when I was a teenager and young, of course, you have to kind of do what your parents say or whatever because you're a minor so I was always of the opinion like as soon as I can legally I'm I'm out I'm out I'm gonna go away from all of that and I I did partially you know not completely because you know like so many other people have spoken to that you've talked to there's such an intense trauma bond with the community with the other kids that we grew up with you know, so it's, it's hard to remove yourself and feel like you have a place in the world outside of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I struggled with that a lot, just like we all did, you know, but all along, I knew that, that I was never going to be a Sikh. I was never going to be a part of 3HO. I was never going to participate in anything that Yogi Bhajan offered, you know. Um, so it was just a matter of trying to find my place as a young adult, you know, and that took a long mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I want, I want to hear kind of a little more sequential story, but before we even go there, I, I want to just point out that by 1991, you're 18, and 
91, I wasn't quite 18 yet. In 91, I was still 16. So I was still in high school. I'd just gotten back from India for the final time. I had a couple more. I had high school still basically to finish. And I did finish high school in the U.S. And then I graduated. Okay, so, so when you graduated high school, rather, um, and your older sisters were also speaking out, just kind of, I want a context for the listeners this, that for since maybe 96, you can give me the time that you've been vocal about experiences and using language like trauma and speaking to detrimental, you know, systemic trauma, even though maybe that language wasn't what it is now. And I want to context it before we go more into historical story, because what it means for you and your two older sisters to have been speaking out during the last few decades is an important context, not only for the outside listeners, but also for those of us that grew up in the community that maybe also weren't listening. Yeah. So I, yeah. um, I know that I remember, like, I don't, I know I wasn't speaking the way that I'm speaking now back then, of course, because I didn't know either. I didn't know. I didn't have that word trauma in my, in my life. You know, I learned a lot about all this much, much later on, but what I did know was that I, when, you know, when we'd get together at solstice or whatever, and, you know, people we'd talk about things and how great this and how great that. And I was always the one in the, you know, no, it wasn't great. It wasn't great for me. It wasn't okay. You know? And, and I got a lot of, uh, you know, don't be so angry. You're fine. Get over it. You know, kind of pushback from everybody, not just from parents and adults and whatever, but also from other kids. And so I, kind of just stopped talking about it after a while you know I stopped bringing it up I stopped saying that part of it for a long time and then um and then as I learned more and as I started to learn more about what was really happening in my own brain in my own body as I got older that's when I started to be more vocal and it was this it was similar I think for my sisters like it wasn't it wasn't when we were in the thick of it that we were really outspoken, but it, it became more as we all aged and as we kind of separated out away from it and kind of developed our own knowledge and skills uh, around what actually is going on with our bodies, our minds, our, our whole character, our personalities, like that stuff is fundamentally changed by the environment that we grew up in and the trauma that we all experienced. So it takes a long time to recognize it, you know? Yeah, like it's a marinade. You're just seeping it in as a marinade, not a before after experience, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, anyway, I just want to just acknowledge this podcast is a platform, but your voices have mattered and and haven't necessarily been listened to all the time. And I want to just say the, the courage that it takes to be speaking out to these types of Um, things we're now starting to piece together. So thanks. And, and, you know, for, for me, I feel like my part in it is small compared to my sister Narokar, you know, she's been, she's been hardcore on the front lines with this for a really long time and she's really, really good at it. And so I want to give her really all the, all the props because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have learned as much as I know now as well. So, you know, it's um, 
it's been a long time and it's been a lot of a lot of pain to go through and relive and to learn and acknowledge and to really understand the depths of trauma that we all experienced whether or Absolutely. not yeah whether or not people think they or say or feel that they had an okay experience in India that might be true but we all still were in 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 an environment that was neglectful that was abusive in so many ways some worse for, for some uh, way worse than others but it was you know lord of the flies on crack you know we we were left to our own volition at the ages of five six four whatever you know and yeah and that the culture of gleaming good and is itself a, a survival trauma experience you know Absolutely. like do that it's and and i've heard both nankar and you speak to that and i you know as we learn about understanding how trauma responses work in our brain body communication yeah. again it just felt important to acknowledge this early work that uh, your sisters and you have done so yeah um Will you take us back? Will you give us a, an, a glimpse of one of the things that's quite significant, I think, for me that stands out about your story? Because I don't know you, even though we're the same age group, we grew up in different ashrams, I didn't go to India. Um, but one of the things that stands out is that your family has many levels of, of people in it. And so that creates a complex web of, of um, complexity. So give us a, a background into your story. Let us let us get a glimpse. I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. I mean, just a real quick kind of overview because it's pretty much the same as so many others. You know, I was born, you know, in 76 in Hartford. My dad was the, you know, the ashram head in Connecticut. And so he was in that position. And, um, you know, I was there, I don't remember much, honestly, from when I was younger, uh, my memory is really, really bad, you know, so I don't remember specifics. I remember like that I went to children's camp, you know, before going to India, I remember going and doing that. I don't remember anything from children's camp as being, you know, anything other than just what I know now, which was, you know, cold tents and gross food and you know who you know you're away from your parents but you know I did all that and then um went to India in 83 and to GNFC I was there for I was in third class when when I went and so it was very little very little um I was there until through GNFC, like we went whenever, I don't remember what year it was, maybe 88 or 89 when we moved from GNFC to GRD. And in that time, there was a lapse of time for me. Um, I did stay in America for a short period of time and went to school in, in a public school in Hartford for a short period of time between GNFC and GRD because I wasn't going to go back to India. And then I ended up going back anyway, partly because of that trauma bond. I didn't know how to be without that group of people. So there was a lot of back and forth. And then I was at GRD for a couple of years, I think, I don't, I don't remember exactly. And then I left GRD um, before, like before it all ended and then went, turned into MPA. Um, and I left abruptly in the middle of the year too. 
um, cause I was miserable. And my dad finally, you know, took me out of there and took me home for good. But, um, you know, so I was being, being so young, was having your sisters there helpful, significant? How, how did that impact totally. your time? For me, it was like, I knew that they were there. So that help was a help for me, for sure. Like it was, it was just the knowledge that they were there was, was enough, you know, and I learned early on that didn't really matter that they were there because I wasn't going to get any kind of anything from them. Basically they the school and everything was set up so that, you know, you were kind of kept not, I mean, I don't know if it was super deliberate, but kept kind of separate from the other kids, the other classes and stuff like that. So there wasn't like, oh yeah, you're, you're feeling sad. Go find your sister, you know, like go have that. And there wasn't, so it kind of became a separated out. Like they, they were, you know, up here and I was down there. And so there wasn't a whole lot of interaction first of all but there definitely wasn't a whole lot of familiar you know familiar um you know connection as we grew up so we that's something that is another layer of trauma right so we're sisters we're family we we belong together and we were not able to be together even though we were in the same location we were not together and you know it's taken many, 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 many years to try to come back together, which we're working on now. But, you know, our, our relationship as siblings was destroyed as well, you know, and, you know, same thing with the rest of my family. Like, yes, you, as you mentioned, my grandma, my aunts, my cousins were all in 3HO. They were in India too, you know, but same thing. You have this connection, but not. Give us context. Your grandma was a student of Yogi Bhajan? From what I know, and I don't know the exact story, from what I know, I think it was my grandma who initially, maybe it was my grandma, one of my aunts who kind of found him and glommed onto him. And then um, the rest of them kind of went. So four children of your grandma's. Yeah. So, well, three at first, because she then had another daughter, after she was in the in three show after we were all born so like my our fourth aunt is younger than than all of us and she was in india with us she was basically just like our sibling or cousin um in that same like we she was kind of just lumped in with all of us but so yeah like a big part of our of our family is all in this and they're all still in it and they're all very much on the side of Yogi Bhajan and they present day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it's hard for me to, to even like, when I speak about all of this, it, it, it's a, it's a struggle sometimes to use the strong language that I really want to use. And I do use, but it's hard because I know that, you know, like, you know, if my mom listens to this, you know, I know that she might take it as a personal kind of attack on her, which it's not. I want to speak to that because I want my language around how I feel about this to be understood that it's about the HO as a whole. It's about the, the environment that was set up from by Yogi Bhajan to for everything that's kind of come from it. Individuals in within this group, this cult, because it is, um, 
you know, there's a wide range. There's a wide range of people. There's the extreme narcissists. There's the extreme abusers. There's the, the people who choose to look the other way. There's the people who actually cared for their children and didn't send them to India, you know, or, or maybe even removed all their whole family from the group once they, just, once they learned that it wasn't great. So there's a whole range of individuals, but as a whole, everybody in my opinion that you know first gens that stuck around and sent us all to india and did all what they were told by yogi bhajan are culpable they are responsible for our our experiences good bad and otherwise yeah. you know and we have a collective trauma no matter what our own personal experiences were um, or how we felt about it at any level or any point in our upbringing, you know, we all experienced that environmental, that's what I'm calling it right now. I don't know if that's like a environmental trauma, environmental trauma, because no matter who we were around at any point, the system was set up as it was, we were neglected, we were mistreated, we were abused, we were, you know, all of it ignored, we were, you know, so left to do it on our own and keep up. Yeah. As if a little kid is going to know how to take care of themselves. You know, you're thrust into this environment with nothing. And we were all just like, so disgusting. You know, we wouldn't bathe and, you know, nobody was there to help us learn how to do that stuff. So we just, you know, we winged it. <laughs> And so give us a memory or two that you remember from India, either young or another age, what you would like to share with us about there. Um, you know, I just remember it being nothing like what was explained or described of how it was going to be. You know, we were all, we were told how it was going to be, you know, this great place with swimming pools and horses and, you know, all of these things. And it was basically just like this old rundown, dumpy, dirty nothing, no grass, no nothing, and cold, no heat, cold water. Um, at GNFC, you know, the schedule, the school was very regimented, you know, get up at a certain time, go to have breakfast, go to classes, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you did all that, but there was also, you know, no supervision, we had each dorm had its uh, had a matron and some were mean and some weren't so bad, you know, so you had, you ran the risk every day of getting punished by, for some stupid thing. Um, you know, I remember the first time I got caned, you know, that I remember. Um, but all in all, it was just, uh, it was just a, uh, it was just a, I don't know, chaos. It was chaos. You know, you have a bunch of little kids with a handful of adults and the kids are expected to behave as if they were adults you know i remember seeing one little girl with shit running down her leg because she was so little she wasn't potty trained you know this was an indian girl but still like there was really really young kids and we all had lice we all got sick we all were gross you know as far as cleanliness across the board and then add to that 
neglect from people who you were supposed to trust, like the adults that were sent there with us and abuse by these same adults, like legitimate, gnarly, hardcore, physical abuse. And, and, uh, you know, and, and you, you learn how to, you learn how to survive. You figure it out on the quick to figure out how to either how to either get through it and do as you're told or to what I did, which was I tried to make myself as invisible as possible. So I wouldn't have any in interactions with those people as much as I could avoid it. You know, so it's, it, it's, I remember some stuff, but mostly I just remember being sad and, and cold and hungry <laughs> and I didn't want to be there and I missed home and you know, I wanted to be home and I would have dreams about it and, you know, like normal, normal stuff that you go through when you're in an environment like that as a child and not realizing what's actually happening, which is, you know, the brain is actually changing because we're, it's still developing. So it's changing into a survival mechanism and survival state rather than a healthy, um, individuals you know ability to to be nurtured enough to understand parts of the world that you have to learn as you as you develop instead of here you are have fun mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know being that your family is very complexly involved you have aunts and uncles in and you know I'm speaking this out loud because like this wasn't my experience right I mean I have a small little family in the in the dharma um, but being in India, you're speaking out loud about what you don't like. And then finally you get through to your dad that you can come home. But what is that experience like? Do you end up going back to India because you said that trauma bond, it was like missing friends and like America's not initially. So yeah. So, yeah. So I had a couple of experiences about going back and forth from India and I'll, I'll speak to that. And this speaks to the level of, you know, of how intensely, loyal my parents were to Yogi Bhajan and still are um you know right. so my first my first round with not wanting to go back to India and we I mean we talked about this a lot you know I don't want to go back I don't like it you know blah 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 this is what happened here and this so so we told our parents what was going on they knew Khalsa Council knew what was going on he, they knew about Nanak Dave they didn't care they didn't do anything but um, for me personally, I remember I was, I don't remember what class I was in, maybe sixth or seventh by that time, I was 12. So whatever class you're in when you're 12, fifth, sixth, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But we were home for the winter break. And I remember begging my parents not to let, not to send me back. I was miserable. I did not want to go. I didn't want to do it. Um, so they decided to just, you know, trot me in front of Yogi Bhajan and mm. instead of listening to me, they brought me to him. What should we do? You know, I don't remember all the details of the meeting. All I remember is him telling me, me standing there, little kid standing there in front of him, room full of people, very uncomfortable. I didn't like being around him anyway. So it was always scary and you couldn't really say anything or do anything. It was like, mm, shut up and just listen and be on your way. Like it was very intimidating. So I remember 
that. And then I remember him telling me that if I stayed in the US, I would be raped. So that's what he, what I remember him saying to me in that moment. And so my parents made the decision, I guess they were probably told to send her back, you know? And so that's what they did. And we were in DC when that happened for that meeting. I remember that. And we were at a hotel and I started having like really, really gnarly, intense uh, panic anxiety attacks, like hardcore gnarly, like waking up in, in the middle of the night, just so scared and freaked out and convinced that like the building was burning down. I made my mom go down to the front desk to check, you know, like I was like, it was hardcore. It was really scary. And that happened a few times before I went back to India that year. And then uh, it happened a bunch of times since then, but like, you know, it started then. And I just remember that year was just awful for me. It was just the worst. I don't, I don't remember anything really, any specifics or details. It's just that I was so miserable and I hated it, but it was so fucked up. It's so, this is how fucked up this shit is, is because I hated it so much and I didn't want to be there. And then after that was, was when I, my mom and dad allowed me to go to school for a little while in America. This was between, now this was a little bit long, little, you know, jump ahead a year or so when GNFC, when we left GNFC and then started up at GRD. So there was a time period there where my mom was like, okay, you can, you can stay home. You can, you can go to school here. So I did. And, and I did a little bit, I don't remember how much, but then I got that same kind of that feeling that like I was missing out, you know, like I wanted to be back in India and to be in that because that's what was so normal. It was so, it was so much more comfortable to be there for me than anywhere else. So, I mean, how fucked up is that? Like, I didn't want to be there. I knew I didn't want to be there and I knew I hated it, but then I couldn't not be there, <laughs> you know? So I went back mm -hmm. and, and it was the same thing. That was the same thing when I went to NMI, when I went to New Mexico Military Institute, it was the same thing. I was in school already in America. I was doing fine. Everything was good, but I, I knew that all my peers or many of them were at this place and I didn't want to miss out. I didn't want to not be around them, even though like, you know, I can say now that they, none of those, none of those relationships were real in my opinion. You know, I, I believe that fully, like, I know that many people have, have, have lo long lasting friendships with people that are, that are, that are real. Of course, I'm not going to say that they weren't, but for me, you know, they kind of weren't because nobody ever had my back. Nobody ever, you know, really reached out to, to me or, you know, really any, especially after I, I left and kind of started doing my own thing, the, these relationships were over. So it was, it was very much that trauma, that trauma bond, that, that, these are the only people that know you. These are the only people that understand you. Everybody else doesn't. You're out of place when you're not around them. And I think that that's a really familiar 
scenario for a lot of us, like this, this need to be with each other. And even well, though- Well, to not feel, to not feel like understood anywhere else, like kind of like sensations of like not feeling understood. There's a level of like comfort and familiarity. This is my experience as I like kind of feel it in my body, even though I didn't go to school with, with and create actual like experiences with a lot of you, um, the level of closeness and familiarity kind of, and, and to me, that's what I hear you saying and saying that it's not a real relationship and that it doesn't go beyond the traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so if your whole life is contexted it as your, if your whole childhood is contexted with it as a trauma experience and those relationships aren't, um, extending beyond that. Yeah. And I mean, I had, I had friends that were not Sikhs in the schools that I went to in, in New Mexico. in when I was at McCurdy, like I had friends that were not Sikhs. That was my preference to, to have a group, my group of people that I spent time with not be, not be Sikhs and not be in 3HO. But at the same time, like those relationships were very different, obviously, but there was still that lingering, like, I'm going to go to solstice. I'm going to see everybody. It's going to be great. I want to see these people. And, and you, I think you kind of like, I know for me, when I think about it now, you kind of like build up this, the importance of those relationships, you know, like these people are everything, you know, these people are, are it for me in my life, you know, and for, for a lot a large part of our lives, they were, you know, they were the only thing. Our friends were our mothers, our fathers, our everything. You know, when we were at school together, you know, we didn't care for each other in those ways, but that's what happened. You know, that's what happened between all of us. Even with all the bullying and the abuse and all the shit that, you know, we're hearing about, there's still this other side that there's so much dependency and codependency on each other in that type of environment that it's really hard to separate out the 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 realities and the truths of those relationships versus the the environment and the 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 reason why we're all there in the first place right it's just a it we were thrust into it and we were all in this survival mode i yeah i really find this to be so fascinating because some of the stories that have come out have revealed that 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 Two people could have been living together, be really close all through India and then not know of, you know, actual abuse experiences because the culture itself didn't support sharing that with each other. Well, it didn't support sharing. It didn't support vulnerability of any kind. It didn't support individuality of any kind. It didn't support having your own voice at all. You had to, you know, and if you, if you didn't fall into those categories and you didn't fall in line with what you were supposed to do, um, you were, you were ostracized. You were, you were treated differently by peers and other adults. And, and that was, that was just the way it was. You were given labels. You were given, you were given a reputation true or otherwise that, you know, it happened to a lot of us, you know, I was a trouble. Yeah. Did, what was your reputation? Give us the reputation. Well, I mean, uh, this was, uh, you know, 
this happened more later on and then and then it carried over into when I was in America and in Espanola. Um, you know, there were, from what I understand anyway, there was a rumor going around and there was a lot of rumors that went around, you know, but one about me and none of the rumors that went around were true, but you know, it still has an effect because you can't defend yourself. That was the one thing you couldn't do. You couldn't defend yourself. It didn't matter what right. you said. No. You were lying. So, yeah. you know, so for me, this was at GRD where one of the adults an adult, just keep that in mind. This was an adult. So for anybody listening, this was an adult. I was 12 years old or 13 or whatever, whatever. I don't know. However old I was at the time, she decided to go around and start, you know, spewing all this nonsense about how I was uh, fucking every boy in school and all this. And I was just like, no, but that became what was known. And then, so I didn't, you know, I, I, I don't remember what I did, if I did anything or not. You know, I think I remember just getting mad and sad and kind of, you know, pulling myself away as much as I could from people. But, you know, then when I was back in America, again, I had that same reputation as a troublemaker, as somebody who, who was gonna lead you the wrong way, you know? <laughs> and, wow. and that's what, um, that's what people thought of me and they didn't know me at all and but that's and then the series things club did the same thing yogi budgen when i was in high school in espanola he did it too like he called me a prostitute he told me the police were in espanola were watching me because i was selling drugs you know it, you know he's telling me all these things to try to scare me or whatever and i was just like going oh, no no and but again couldn't defend yourself in those moments when he was, when you're in front of him saying, and he's saying these things, couldn't say no, couldn't say that's not true. Um, but you're a teenager and having a quote meeting again, he's now he's saying you're going to be a prostitute. The police are, I, have so police I was a prostitute at that point. He said, I, I was, see. he said there was no way that I could have had the money that I had to buy drugs. If I weren't a prostitute, there was no way I had a job. <laughs> I was making my own money so I could do what I wanted to do by that time. So I could, you know, smoke as much pot as I wanted and, <laughs> and do or the think independently, think independently, make other choices. So if I'm contexting this right in India, you were vocal and speaking out about things and it, it got more and more. And that became more the case when you were in the U S and so you got end up or did that just happen more because of that treatment that happened in you and you're just like, fuck that? I think it was more of the treatment. And, um, you know, I don't remember being very super vocal about stuff in India or when I was younger, but it was more of the behavior, you know, the rebelliousness, the saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going like, to get up. Yes, that's what I mean by vocal. Because in yeah. our community, doing what you're doing was like blasphemy. Yeah. Like to even be like, no, I don't like that. Like is even like, and yeah. I, I, I'm wanting to really kind of context that because going against the grain of the consensus was like blasphemy saying, I don't like what Yogi Bhajan just said. Like it just didn't happen. And so even your attitude, like somebody would come up and be like, 
Satnamji, and by like by the tonality of their Satnamji, you could be like they're spewing their shame around your behavior, your attitude, and so getting that context of like that became the persona of you that you were like bucking the system a little. Totally, totally, and you know, and that became more and more and more as I got older into my older, you know, into you know being a teenager in the US, you know, like doing things like wearing black, listening to heavy metal music, um, not doing, not going to Gurdwara, not wearing my turban, not dressing the way they wanted, not participating, um, having friends that weren't Sikhs, you know, that was, that was a big deal. You know, my friends were, were ridiculed by my parents, you know, not to their faces, but you know, they were, they were less than, you know, and that's another element of the environment. You know, we were always taught that we were so much better than everybody else. Let me just say something really quick about that too, because I just want to mention, and we can, we don't have to linger on this, but the way that people in 3HO consider themselves to be Sikhs, I just want to speak to that really quickly. Like, it's not real. So like, it's been this whole thing. I'm a Sikh, I'm a Sikh, I'm a Sikh. But the way that if you're in 3HO and you learn from Yogi Bhajan, that's not true Sikhi, it's just not. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very different. Real, the, the true way with, with Sikhi and Sikhism is very, very different. And I would encourage anybody who's still thinking, uh, you know, wants to be a Sikh, if you want to go down that path with your life, fine, just learn about it correctly. Learn about it correctly. Learn about it. Understand what it is. Understand what it means and understand the differences between the true way with, with Sikhi and Sikhism and what Yogi Bhajan taught. It's very different. Very, very, very different. So, you know. That we've really got fragments, fragments of truth. We got what Yogi Bhajan wanted. He, 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 you know, orchestrated it all. He made it into something that was about him, not about, you know, Gurnanik, not about City Guru Grant, nothing. No, it was about him from day one. So he mm-hmm. used Sikhism because he was a Sikh to hook people in. He used these titles that he gave himself and this term, this word Kundalini, to hook people in. None of it is true. None of it is real. None of it is correct. It was all 100% made up. So same along the same lines, I wanted to just say really quick too, like, you know, people have come forward and spoken a little bit about the idea of separating the teacher from the teaching. My opinion on that is no, there is no, when it comes to Kundalini Yoga is taught by Yogi Bhajan, 3HO, there is no separation. It's all Yogi Bhajan. So you either are going to support and continue to support this evil, awful, horrible man or not. Plain and simple. I think I, I just think you're making you're just making a really good point here because you know this body of work that people want to say, oh, the teachings or whatever. It's so filled with so many predatory practices, even if the original source of what he stole and kind of took was like an original truth. 
Sure. And he took a, a, a slice maybe, and, and maybe not even that much in some cases, maybe some completely made up. But my point of that is he made it into what's called a body of work, right? That somebody then delivers to the world. Yeah. And the tremendous work that we have, if somebody wants to bring this stuff, whatever this body of work is forward, it requires a tremendous disintegration to get like, okay, yeah, there's physiological things. There might be numerology tied in here. Sikhism is tied in here. Mantras are tied in here. It doesn't mean mantras aren't real. It just means the way he has created a body of work of teaching about mantra could possibly be laced with predatory behavior and practices that we each have to begin to examine with a new set of eyes, knowing what we know. Yes, and I would go so far as not could possibly be laced with, but is most assuredly laced with. So you're right, like there are many ways to a person's spirituality, many, many paths to that. But this particular path, 3HO, Kundalini Yoga is taught by Yogi Bhajan, is tainted, 100% tainted. So people still involved with it, people taking down the pictures of Yogi Bhajan in their studios, but continuing to teach this stuff. KRI is still operating. They all are still operating. Like, no, all you're doing is perpetuating the same abuses, the same bullshit, the same, it goes on and on and on and on. So, you know, that's my stance on that. And, you know, and it just, it, it just is like, uh, I'm not going to hold judgment on anybody's choices for themselves, but understand what you're choosing. First of all, understand what it is that you're doing. Who are you supporting? You know, it, it's, there's many things in our world that we get to make those choices. Do I want to spend my money at a store that um, segregates? Yes or no? Right. <laughs> Do I want to attend a, 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 you know, a event sponsored by the KKK? Yes or no? It's really quite simple choices. And, that, and that's where, for me, that's where 3HO and Kundalini Yoga and, and Yogi Bhajan sit. Do you want to support a rapist and a predator or not? Mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and it starts from the top. It starts with him. So everything else is tainted. All the businesses, all the people, the school, everything. It's all tainted. I just think it's so important what you're saying because even though he's not alive, that behavior, the patterns, yep. the, the, the underlying kind of intention and um, breeding is still happening through the teacher trainings, through the perpetuation of predatory teachers, um, creating sexual abuse experiences. Very, what we're hearing is very similar formula to what we now are discovering Yogi Bhajan has used for the last 50 years. And for it's one thing if that was stopped and that lineage didn't continue, but That's we're right. seeing and hearing stories where this is what's happening in the, in the hierarchy of teachers, in the perpetuation of, quote, the teachings, Latin America, you know, people are going on as if it's 
Um, you know, there's one thing where people are going on as if it's blind, they're blind to what's been going on, but there's another whole group, like you're saying, that are, that think just by removing Yogi Bhajan, you can carry on and not really do the level of examination to say no, because yeah. these practices still exist in every teacher training school I've witnessed, gaslighting, victim shaming, certain concepts that are infused in the teachings that my body was like, no, that's wrong about emotional body. That's wrong about this. And if we're not doing that level, if we're just taking a body of work and still holding it in reverence, we haven't really looked critically at the stories to see the patterns to recognize the systemic abuse that is infused into it all. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's that obviously that's still going on. And, you know, and when it comes to the second generation, when it comes to us, you know, and the third generation and so on, you know, um, you know, we are, many of us are now coming forward, right? We've heard a lot of stories. Everything though, I will say about this, about the stories that people are coming forward with, the, the Zoom calls that happened early on in COVID with all of this stuff, um, all of that is tainted. All of it is tainted and it's tainted because it's all being funneled through 3HO still. So none of those calls were recorded. All those people who came forward, that was the, my big red flag right from the beginning. You know, these people are coming forward and, and, and opening up and re-traumatizing themselves and all of us. And, you know, the people who were running these calls didn't record them because they wanted to keep everything private, but then they say they're going to make changes or do things or whatever. And it's just a slap in the face to all of us in, in all honesty, honesty, you know, it's, um, it's, I don't see anything changing within the scope of 3HO as far as the treatment of their children or the, what are they calling it? The, uh, what are they calling the, the restorative justice bullshit? No. Yeah. I, just want to Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm feeling it a little bit like veneer, you know, like a, a all that it is. veneer. That's all that it on. is. That's all that it and ever that's is. And so familiar. Like, I feel like veneer is a specialty for our organizations, like mm -hmm. the public veneer, mm -hmm. the private mm -hmm. happenings, and that it's right. a really important theme that I feel like is recurring of kind of not just as an organizational entity, but also what we're hearing through some of the stories of the private public life. Like I'll paint this spiritual veneer and what's really happening is a lot of deep level of unprocessed trauma and pain and abuse that's Absolutely. seeping out as infidelity and lying and living double lives. And, you know, when I hear these stories, it reminds me of lots of things, but one growing up with, you know, feeling that level of double life energy, but also when I kind of had the idea of like, I think I might want to teach Kundalini yoga, the biggest resistance of why I didn't want to was I didn't want to live a public, a private and public life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of the uh, environment, you know, that's part of 3HO's thing. So it's taught, my students, it's taught 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and not only is it taught, it's what we as second gens growing up in this environment, this is what is normal, right? So, so we want to talk about normalizing abuses. You, all you have to do is look at our lives because we had no choice. And it was either you, you do, you do whatever you need to do to survive. And in order to do that, you normalize that. Oh, it wasn't so bad. Uh, you know, I got hit today, whatever. I had to do Muruga for 15 minutes, whatever, you know, whatever, no big deal, right? Whatever, no big deal. That's kind yeah. of the attitude that we had to take to survive through a lot of that stuff. And, you know, and obviously deep within us, we all knew, I knew anyway, that that it was not okay to be slapped and caned and hit by adults. You know, I was unhappy. I wasn't cared for. I knew that, you know, that as a child, you know, but there's nothing you can do, at least in our circumstances, it felt like that anyway, because we all knew if you tried to do anything, you got treated differently, worse, most often, you know, and you know, so the levels and depths of trauma that we all experienced are, you know, I mean, it, it goes so far, it goes so deep. It's, and, and for us, it was literally started the minute we were born. We were not seen, maybe for some, but I'm just speaking to my family, you know, I don't believe that we were seen, me and my sisters were seen as, as, you know, anything other than things, things that were there that can be used in whatever way they wanted, you know, and I don't- That your parents gave you up in that capacity, meaning they kind of like gave up all agency of their children to to whatever Yogi Bhajan said, and it was this hands-off parenting energy. Totally, very hands-off, very much like the community, you know, is going to care for you, blah, blah, blah. Not even that, but just like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they were told. I don't know what their perspective on it was. You know, I think that, you know, my parents believe in their minds that they were great parents and did everything you know, right. And, you know, they believe that what Yogi Bhajan told them was the right thing to do. And what gets me still is that when we, as our own human individual beings ever, you know, expressed sadness, loneliness, I want to come home. I don't want to do this. We were dismissed. You know, a lot of us were dismissed. Not everybody, you know, not everybody's parents did that, but I would say probably the majority did, you know, the majority did. And when someone was in true danger, they were also ignored, you know, I'm sorry, but you don't allow an adult man to continue beating up little kids, you know, but the Siri Singh Saab, he, he knew, he knew what was going on. He, he let it happen. He, wanted it to happen he knew you know there's there's recorded evidence that that they that that they knew what was going on and they chose to not make any changes to keep us safe so it's you know it's on them it's on them it's on all of them it's on every single 
one of them, not just our individual parents, in my opinion, it's on the whole, it's on the collective because nobody spoke up. We've heard stories. I couldn't speak up. I couldn't speak up. I wanted to, I saw this, I removed myself, but I couldn't speak up. Right. I Mm -hmm. couldn't do anything. I couldn't intervene. Right. So again, that was the environment, but my big beef (laughs) personally is that they didn't and they didn't do enough. They didn't fight hard enough to keep us safe. And those that did were the ones who left with their kids and then didn't have any access back to the community, as we now know. But we, as kids, you don't know who those people are. They just aren't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can go even farther and say that it's the same, same type of thing talking about us, me and my sisters. You know, the younger kids, they don't know me. You know, they don't know who I am. They don't know who I was. You know, all of these other kids that are coming forward now who spent time in MPA, they were told that we were evil. We were prostitutes. We were, you know, whatever the fuck they were told, you know. And so Off we were the path, didn't make it all the right, things. Weak, weak, you know, or or whatever, you know. So they're led to believe that because we weren't around, we hate them or we you know, hate it all or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that they or hate, but they make a choice, say, to be a Sikhi or any of that. Like there's a perpetuation of stories. Yeah. Yeah. And this yeah. is a part of the template or a formula of a keeping people in silence because it's a predator tool to keep people yeah. silent. Because if we yeah. speak out and tell yeah. our story, the stories create a tapestry of real truth beyond right what right. we were implanted right. or told about each other or um, experiences. Yeah. So that's where like now it's so important to be, to bring out all these truths, right? So, so, uh, so much of what we were all led to believe is just flat out, not true, flat out lies, wrong, absolutely wrong. Like we, those of us who came before the younger kids, you know, we were there, we experienced it all too. You know, we, we are here, (laughs) you know, we can talk about it. We can, we can heal, you know, but it's really hard when there's such a, such a, a crumbling of trust from just the very beginning, you know, just absolutely not okay to trust anybody or anything, let I mean, even yourself, you know, don't trust your own thoughts and feelings, you know, the hello gaslighting, you know, but like, that's a huge part of shifting from the being in that survival mode and that survival state and being in that trauma and shifting out of it as you develop. So, you know, as we, as we talk, you know, you know, talking about that process, talking about understanding and learning. Like I know for me, when I was younger and before I really started to do a lot of therapy, I just felt like I was crazy. Nobody ever helped me to under, nobody ever used the word trauma. Even when my mom, I asked her one time, I said, didn't you see that I was struggling? didn't you see that when I was a teenager? Didn't you see that I was having a hard time and I, I didn't, and she go, yeah, I, I knew I saw. And I was like, well, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you help me? 
And she had no answer for that, you know? And, but that's the thing, like, so I didn't know. I just simply didn't know. I didn't know there was a name for what I was going through. Mm. I just didn't know. So I felt I was crazy. And I did everything that I could to avoid meeting that, you know, and I did, I spent many years avoiding it <laughs> by physically avoiding it. I would move to another city when stuff got mm. hard and I would start mm. over and I would pretend that everything was good until it wasn't. <laughs> and I spent a lot of years doing that until I finally decided that I needed to face this shit head on and and figure it out and and put myself first that was something and I'll speak to that really quickly too like if if anybody listening is unsure of how to start unraveling this stuff think about putting making yourself your priority that's what I did I I made a very conscious decision I'm going to do this for me not for anybody else. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop thinking about how it looks or how it might make someone else feel, particularly my parents, because that's going against them. So it might hurt their feelings. No, no more, no more of that. It has to be about, has to be for me first. Once I made that decision, uh, it was, things started to change, you know, because I was in therapy. So I was learning about trauma, learning about complex trauma, learning about PTSD, under starting to understand that what I was experiencing was that, like, I mean, to the letter. Mm. <laughs> and mm. so you, you start to be able to understand, oh, okay, maybe I'm not crazy, but there's this thing that I can actually learn how to, how to manage, how to, uh, how to, I, and I can start to learn more healthy life skills, right? How to live in the present, how to be in the present, how to be in your own life, in your own body, how to figure out what it is that you truly value for yourself, not because somebody else tells you to, not because you're afraid that if you do something wrong, you're going to be kicked to the curb, you know? And, right. and that's, I think, something that's really important for people, um, with trauma experiences like ours to, to think about a little bit, to, to, you know, ask those hard questions. What do I want? Who am I? I didn't know. I didn't know most of who I am until my thirties, you know, that's a lifetime. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's gnarly. And I know that most of us probably experience the same type of type of thing in one way or another, you know, that we're in that environment. It's mm -hmm. really confusing and it's really hard and it's really hard to uh, be open and vulnerable and, and feel the feelings, you know, that was something that was never okay for us. It was never okay to be happy. It was never okay to be sad. It was never okay to be angry. It was never okay to be happy. It was never okay to be having a good time. You know, what's wrong with you? You're laughing. <laughs> you know, that was the sense that I always got, you know, like, don't be a child. You're not a child. I am a child. I need to act like a child, but you don't get to that's cut off. So that's a huge element of the, of the deep loss that we all experience.
deep, 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 really intense loss that we all have experienced in some way or another, you know, Mm. is child, that childhood, that child (laughs) gone, gone. Yeah. Yeah, You're just bringing up so many great um, kind of signposts is the way that I kind of describe it of like things that you didn't know to call trauma. You just noticed it was just something that was a normal thing in your own say body behavior pattern and to even learn, Oh, to even like start naming or associating feelings, sensations, patterns, behaviors, thoughts to a, it's just so valid. So including yourself, that was a big one for me. Yeah. And one that I keep having to revisit layers of what does it mean to include myself in the circle of care? Yeah. 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 It's important. You know, we are, our individualities were, were stripped at a young age. You know, it was, some people hung, clung to some stuff that some personal stuff and some like me didn't, I didn't have anything that I felt I could hold to, you know, for my sister, um, both my sisters, you know, I think they had their, they had their own things that they could kind of cling to that they really truly loved as a, as, as a kid, as a child. For me, it was always just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I never, I never even felt like I had anything that I could call my own as far as something that I felt really passionate about and really loved and really felt a, a, a true personal connection to in my own body, in my own, my own mind, spirit, you know, whatever, whatever it is you want to call it, you know, and, you know, for me, we talked a little bit about this the other day, for me, it turned out that, it, that those things were music and, you know, physical activity. And that was a big part of, of, all of this stuff for a lot of us, you know, you find some way to get it out somehow to get it out, to, to, you know, to feel, feel something good, you know, in, in your, in yourself, you know, Mm. and and for me, it came in little bits and pieces, but it was there a little bit. Music was the thing for me, you know, Mm. what helped me. Specifically heavy metal though, no? And I want, I want you to share that because uh, being the time period, like I remember maybe I was around maybe like 13-ish or whatever it was. I remember coming to ladies camp and there was a group of kids coming back from India that were in like the 20 to 17 range. And there was kind of that kind of like rumble in the community and like, oh my God, everyone likes Metallica. People aren't wearing their turbans. People are wearing black and, yeah. and kind of describe that because you were one of those teenagers Totally. And like what it felt like to kind of create like what that ripple effect really was doing in our community to give listeners well, I mean, some perspective. Yeah, you know? I don't I don't know what it was doing in the community because I really was checked out. I'll be honest with that at that time. Like I was very checked out of everything. Um, so I don't know what it was doing in the community. All I knew at that time was there was this thing there was this thing I could have that was mine that I, and, and for whatever reason, I just gravitated to heavy metal and punk music early on. Like it would be playing, you know, you know, the older kids would have something and I would listen to it and my older sister liked it. And, you know, so I would hear this stuff and that's what, 
gravitate. That's what my ears wanted to hear. You know what I mean? And then it morphed into, it morphed into more for me as I got older because it was, you know, for whatever reason, you know, who knows, like, I don't know why, you know, that particular type of music resonated with me as much as it does, but it did. And, and maybe it was like the rebelliousness of, of it, the, the, you know, we're going to go against you kind of attitude of punk music and heavy metal, you know, it was very anti-establishment. It was very, you know, I'm going to do what I want and fuck you, you know, and that was <laughs> how I felt, right? Like, that's what, that's what I, I still feel like that. I'm still, that's a part of me. That is part of who I am, that rebel, that, that screw you, I, you know, I'm going to do what I want how I want in the way that I want. And that music spoke to that. And, you know, so for me, it, it's stuck, you know, and, and I'm not obviously like now as an adult, I'm not in that trauma state as much anymore, but I still listen to the same music and it still has the same effect on me. You know, it's, it's soothing. Like that's the best word I can, I can, how I can describe that that heavy, hard, fast, just uh, angsty, ang angry, right? Music, mm -hmm. it makes me feel calm and cool and home. That's one way I can describe it. You know, when I go to heavy metal concerts, that's how I feel. I feel comfortable. I feel where I'm supposed to be. I feel, you know, that's how it feels to me. So that to me is really something that's novel in my life. You know, I don't have a lot of, a lot of things in my world that I feel that way in, you know, where I feel truly comfortable, truly safe, you know, which is crazy to think because you go to a heavy metal show, you're really not safe, but you know, that's how it feels to me. <laughs> but, you know, so it's kind of, I just yeah, I love that it was something that like you found when you were a teenager or kind of at that stage and, and that it has continued to support you because yeah. the therapy of music and understanding that each of us need to learn our nervous system and our healing places, yeah. even when we're told, oh, this is the right stuff and this is the wrong stuff. We, yeah. we have to ultimately know what's right for us. And it sounds like you've been doing that a long time, but only really had names for it along the way as you got therapy. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, within our, within this 3HO community and within this environment that we grew up in this traumatic environment, a big part of, of so much of it is if you did go against the, the grain, as it were, you, that was somehow not okay. So just the simple fact that I listened to this type of music was not okay. You know, we had a period, right. me and, and my family, you know, decided that it was, uh, it was their responsibility to remove all of our heavy metal music and, and black clothing from our lives. And so they did, they destroyed it all. And what? yeah. And, you know, that's not going to stop us. Like it was just a fucking horrible, mean, dumb, fucked up thing to do because they needed to wield their power over us. And, you know, whether that was, you know, okayed by Yogi Bhajan, who knows, but we were, we were, um, you know, treated 
badly by our our family because of these things that that we that we chose we wanted in our lives and and that was really hard <laughs> you know it didn't it's stop extremely us, hard it's like it's not being accepted for who you are and the choices yeah. you're making which is right. basically a disconnect from our autonomy our sense of agency our sense of belonging our sense of self like the That's layers right. of the disconnect on yeah. trauma levels is run so deep yeah. and not though only, we can yeah. be like oh that's what all parents do no in this context it goes against the sense of yourself is wrong that's right that's right so yeah so we were just you know you know i always felt like just being there was wrong around my family you know I always felt like just being there was, was not okay for me to be. It was always very uncomfortable. And I tried, I tried to have some sort of connections with them, but it just didn't happen. And when I, when I left, you know, when I removed myself, you know, the only person who's ever really tried to maintain any kind of relationship is my mom. You know? Out of all your family that's still in 3HO, the only person that is reached out to stay connected as your mom. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of conversations with another one of my aunts, you know, over the years, and she's kind of removed herself from 3HO now and stuff. But, you know, that came much later. And there was always moments, you know, little snippets and moments and, and whatever. But um, mostly it was, it was nothing. And, you know, you know, it was my you know, my grandma a little bit, just because I think really only because she lives with my mom. Um, I think if it weren't for that, it wouldn't, wouldn't be that way. But, you know, so I hold it, it you know, it's hard because I do hold a space in my life for my mom. But it's also really, really hard to, to it's hard to hold a space for her in my life, because I really don't want to have anything at all to do with any of that. But there's that one little thing you know, but uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Within the family, have they like actively shunned you and your sisters or they just kind of like put you in the category of like, I don't want to touch her because she's off the path. I don't you know. Have no idea. You don't, don't know how they relate to you. It's just no. been so many years. You don't even have communication. Mm -hmm. um, and as yeah. far as you all, you know, all your family is just kind of on the, on the, uh, uh, hasn't tuned in at all and kind of like in the complete denier arena. I think so. Um, again, I don't know for sure, but I think so. I mean, I think that they've got a pretty loud voice and a big position within the community in Española. And I think that they're pretty much still pretty loyal. Um, but again, so I don't know very entrenched like in the organizational realm of hierarchy as well is your family yeah. all within the organizations of like kri or three I, I, I don't know but i think so on some on uh you know in some ways or uh, or others yeah um but i don't know how much i i've never known i've never really wanted to know so i've never i don't know where they stand within that but um I do know that they're all still very much involved wow. and loyal and, you know, um, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that Yogi Bhajan wasn't who he was, you know, who they who he claimed to be. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the stories about rape. 
They don't want to hear that. And they need to. Everybody needs to hear it. He was a predator through and through. He was evil. He was a monster. He was a narcissist. He was a psychopath. He was a sociopath. He, he did what he did very intentionally. And, you know, and then he had other people do that same shit intentionally as well. So, right. and it's still happening. These still formulas happening. are still happening now. Yeah. And there's yeah. veneers that are painted really well. And then it's also yeah. happening through, as we're hearing, it's happening through um, the children that have been born in the generations forward that don't even know they're carrying a lot, a lot of the unconscious predatory patterns or behaviors of thinking these things are okay. Uh, you know, uh, and maybe. But I have no, you know, for that, no. If you're any kind of decent human being, you know. You know when you're hurting another person. I'm sorry, but you know. You know, you have a choice to make as an adult to not beat up a little kid. You have a choice to make as an adult to not force somebody to work 10 hours, save a dar style and allow a teenager to get some food and sleep. You have a choice as an adult to make those decisions, especially when you're in a position of power. If you are sent to India as a guide, as an adult, as a teacher, as whatever the fuck you're, you're sent there for, you're an adult. And this goes for all the adults in our lives. You are the adult. So you have a choice to make it's not, I, I'm obeying orders. You know what? Fuck that. That's not what Sikhi is. First of all, you claim to be a Sikh. You don't go around beating up kids. You know, so, so as an adult, no matter what, I have no, there's no excuse, in my opinion. These behaviors are unforgivable behaviors. These things that happened over the years, over and over and over again, are unforgivable behaviors no matter what the excuses that come out of these people's mouths are. They were adults. They were responsible for children. You take responsibility for those children so that they do not get hurt, period. Period, end of fucking story. So yeah. if you don't do that, then you're just evil. You're just evil. Yeah, and that these things have carried on through the generations, I guess, is what I'm saying is that there's generations of kids that have then grown up and kind of Mm -hmm. living this, you know, I'm going to be saintly here and kind of play the role, but really are acting out quite predatory behaviors because they have unhealed trauma, you know, that this this, trauma. And that's again that normalizing of, of the environment and of the trauma and the abuses. You know, so it is all there. It is all part of, of the whole, but again, for me, when I think of this stuff, again, it's, if, if you are a person with any kind of conscience, any kind of, of care, any kind of spiritual life, I'm sorry, but if you claim to be a spiritual person in any way, like, you know, you're also claiming to be a good person. That's those two things go together. Right. So you don't do that. It doesn't fit. 
And no matter how much trauma we've all experienced, we know, (laughs) I'm sorry, but we know, we know, like we've heard stories like of, of other kids, like, yeah, I probably bullied up on little kids. I don't remember doing it, but I probably did. I probably did. I don't remember. I probably did too. And that sucks. And that's awful. And I want to believe that I didn't, but I probably did. You know, but that's, that's the environment. And there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse. If I, you know, I'll say, I'll state it very clearly. If I was somebody who hurt anybody younger than me in India in any way, there's no excuse for that. It's unforgivable in my opinion. And I don't deserve forgiveness if I hurt somebody. I don't deserve it at this point, you know, because I don't remember and I've never been confronted by anyone. So I've not had an opportunity, any opportunity for direct, you know, reconciliations, you know, but if somebody comes to you, let's say to you or whoever, someone younger or older, whoever comes to you and says, you did this to me, you had better own that shit right fucking now and make amends. That's, that's what you need to do. That's what we all need to do. No matter what, no matter how small it might've seemed like, you know, to that person or to you or whatever, you know, oh, you got slapped by somebody. If that person remembers that and is hurt by that, you hurt them. You know? Yeah. I think it's really important to pointing out that, you know, bringing it back to the first generation, right? That the the level of complicity and that one can be a victim, they could be that category can be victims, but it doesn't discount the responsibility that must be taken in terms of the level of complicity and participating in it. Absolutely. Even in a state of their own victimhood. Yeah. And that's, that's my position, you know, so I, I don't accept excuses. I don't accept, well, we didn't know. They did know. They did know. And even if they didn't then, as they awaken now, there's still an element of self-responsibility that can be taken now. Absolutely. And that yeah. is needed for the healing process to actually take place. Being able to stay in the unconscious of I just didn't know doesn't ground it into self-responsibility in any way. That's right. And, you know, and I, I think like with, with this kind of conversation, when we talk about that kind of that level of responsibility, you know, it's what I want to emphasize is that we, as the second generation were children, we were actually innocent in all of this. And we did not have a choice, you know, until you made a choice for yourself as an adult to either stick with three Cho and follow Yogi Bhajan and, you know, do whatever it is that you want to do as an adult you know, once you make those decisions for yourself on a, on a real level, then, then that's a different story. But overall, as little kids, babies being shuffled around, you know, <laughs> uh, it's not on us. It is not on us to, to hold their, their feelings around it. Right. We don't need to hold space and be compassionate to hold for that. If anything, we need to start learning to hold space for ourselves Yeah. because we were the ones neglected and, and normalized in neglect basically means that we actually feel more comfortable in taking care of others than ourselves. And that Absolutely. is a weird thing 
because we don't even know what it means. There's a level of selfishness that shows up if we actually tend to self. And that's not real. That's actually a sensory disconnect. Absolutely. And that's where, that's where when, like for me, when I made that decision very intentionally, I thought about it a lot to put myself first every single moment of my process when I started to really go hard into therapy, you know, and into my life, changing my life, because that's what right. was needed. Um, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to do that after you've been in that type of traumatic environment for, for your whole life. It's hard to feel like you're not being selfish when you take care of yourself, to feel like right. you, you if you're not giving everything to somebody else or whatever thing, then you're somehow lazy or, or, you know, you're just, you're just, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know. But like, you know, it, it, it's really <clears throat> to say that, that that's not true, that you as your own self are most important in your life. Top of the list, no matter what. You should be, and not by word, but by deed. And the act of doing it is literally a neural rewiring pattern. You have to actually feel the discomfort of saying, No, I come first, and hold the sensations of blocking out others, holding yourself there, and that how excruciating it was over and over and over again to do that. I really relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really gnarly. And, but it's, I think it's really, really important because then that helps, it helped me to be able to stop making excuses for the way that I was treated. You know, it Mm. made, it, it opened up, it opened up a level of me being able to look at certain situations from a different stance you know and look at it from uh, you know a little step back and go whoa that was not okay that was super fucked up that was painful and hurt that was abuse plain and simple you know whereas before when I was younger it was you know it might have been no big deal yeah but I yeah but I moved on yeah but whatever right made me stronger. I'm happy for the international experience. I'm happy for whatever, just you can context it in a ways that it supported growth in one way, even though it was extreme neglect. And right. we, we don't have to discount something great in order to call it what it is. That's right. And that's another important, really, a really important point, right? So, so for those of us who might still use the the words like it wasn't so bad for me the experience made me stronger you know i really value that all that might be true that's great if it was for you if you did not experience or you don't recall being abused that's great for you i'm not going to try to say no you were you know but what i am going to say is that the environment as a whole that we were in was absolutely traumatic. And all of us show signs and symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which can be, which by the way, I'll just mention this too, is not on any like professional list of actual, you know, diagnosable conditions. Complex trauma is, is not part of that. So if you, so, I was reading the other day that complex trauma and complex post-traumatic stress disorder 
um, is often misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder. Mm. So mm. it's still something that is that is new in the realm, in the medical world, in the therape- therapeutic psychological world of therapy and, 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 you know, things, right? It's still fairly new. When I started doing my own therapy, I searched high and low for papers and information on this because I knew it wasn't PTSD. I knew right. I was something, this is different. What what is it? What is it if you've been in this type of traumatic experience and environment your entire life? What is in that? utero? Right. right. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of stuff out there. Now there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot more. So it's mm-hmm. starting to be more in that, in the psychological, you know, the nomenclature of, of disorders, mental health disorders that are recognizable. Uh, from therapists and stuff so that's a good thing but huge huge even just hearing the language on complex trauma complex ptsd it was so ring so true for the first time and then you know we know there's been a lot of young people that have been diagnosed with bipolar and other mental health and that mental health wasn't addressed do you want to touch on the lack of addressing mental health and kind of using yoga and mysticism as a way well, to, do you want to speak to that at all? I mean, I, I can a little bit, but again, like I, since I never really participated in the yoga side of stuff, like what I can say is that, you know, uh, I mean, I never heard like when I was, you know, growing up, I never really heard, well, you know, there's no such thing, or this is going to help you with this, you know, now, by the way, you know, KRI has, you know, speaks this way this will cure this will help your ptsd and trauma fucking bullshit flat out bullshit sorry (laughs) um that really actually want to put a pin in that before you continue because uh since all this went down since may june july right and all these stories have come out and you know they held these space for the zoom calls and you know did the investigation all these things shortly after that they also paid a pr firm to flood the internet with positive stories of kundalini yoga and all the benefits. And, you know, that bothered me, but to add to that insult to to me was the veneer they started painting on were people of color, black people, women, and then using terminology like shadow healing, helping with trauma and PTSD. And knowing what we know of the shadow of our community and how it's still not fully talked about openly, honestly, transparently. So mad. Right. It makes me so fucking mad. I mean, I get so enraged and, you know, it's just not okay, you know, and that's why these kind of conversations are so important because anybody listening, you had better fucking do your research, figure out and find out where you're going and where you're getting your information from. You walk into a studio that teaches Kundalini, you should turn and walk away. Plain, period, plain and simple. These are predators through and through and they're still doing this and they are, 3HO is discounting our stories as if we're liars and all of this nonsense and nothing's going to change within that community. This is something that I believe. So I think it's just more important to have 
conversations like this so that so that it's out there so that so that you know if somebody is interested in learning some of the the background before going and doing their kundalini teacher training or whatever there's more information out there and we will not be silenced sorry no way that time is over the time for that is done i don't uh, you know i'm i know like the way that i speak about it can be can be harsh can be come off as mean or whatever sometimes but look it's been 50 years i'm 44 my entire life you know has been trying to sort this shit out because it's wrong it is wrong and it's it's not okay to perpetuate the type of abuses that have been perpetuated within that community over and over and over and over and over again. And you want to talk about ignoring mental health. That's a big one. You know, you need something in that community. You're not going to get it from that community. That's not. And to say that Kundalini yoga is for mental health, when you have a long history of not addressing mental health with the children that were raised in your own community is disturbing. Like, do I feel, yeah. it's a slap in the face to all of us. It's a straight up, you are, you, you shouldn't be speaking kind of the same bullshit that they've always done, you know, because so many of us have struggled so intensely with this stuff, you know, to the point of suicide, to the point of being institutionalized, to the point of doing horrendous deeds in, right. in because of it, because our parents ignored it. Our parents were frontline with that. You know, you don't help your child. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> you know, you don't see your child's, you, you don't ignore a, a hurting child. Sorry, you don't do that if you're a parent. It's not okay. It's not okay in any no matter- no matter no what. matter what story you tell yourself yeah yeah if you choose to be a parent you had better step up to that role fully mm. and guide your children into a healthy strong life you know and and that did not happen for us that's so right. you know and that's and that's on them that's on them that's not on us we were not i'm sorry we didn't come out of the womb with all the knowledge of of kundalini you know, no, <laughs> we're normal human beings who needed to be cared for. We needed to be loved. We needed to be um, safe. We needed to know that we had people we could trust, truly, not fake bullshit trust, but truly, you know, we needed to know that there was people in our lives that we could rely on. And that was not there in any, at any time in our lives. It was just not there. So we all developed really, really good skills on how to either let it go, you know, slough over that stuff and move into survival mode really quick. And you, we've heard the stories, you know, I shut down. I didn't want to feel anything. I chose not to feel anything. You know, I, I create for me personally, I believe I created a world in my, in my head that I wanted. And that was my truth for a long time. 
And that's what mm. I clung to. You know, I clung to the belief that my parents loved me and I clung to the belief that they cared, fully cared until, uh, you know, that, that shattered and I, and I had to actually face the truth of it all, which was not that. So, you know, it sucks. It's terrible. It's hard, but you know, that's, that's where, that's where we all were in that, in that group, in that environment were things like that you know not everybody had it as maybe extreme as others but you know but it's all there we all we all if you were in india you were in survival mode <laughs> you were in trauma day in day out 24 7 yeah can you share with us another uh, coping or trauma strategy that you discovered in yourself as you started getting therapy or became aware more you know, I think the biggest one, and I still, you know, I, I, I ha I'm not doing, I'm not doing active therapy right now, but you know, within all of the, everything that I learned, I still obviously go through all that stuff is every, every day, you know, you, you acknowledge that and, and you, you do your best. Right. But I think for me, the biggest thing was the level of disassociation in my own brain and my own body. Like it was, it's extreme, I would say, because there's so much, and this ties into the fractured memories, the fractured emotional connection to your memories. You know, you're like, I can't remember specifics. I wouldn't be able to say I was with you at such and such, you know, I can say generally, yeah, I was there. I do. And I remember little bits and pieces, you know, but I think I was so checked out. Like that's, that's the best way that I can describe it. I was just checked out completely. And I, and I catch myself a lot still being kind of in that state of just not being present in my life, not being present for the person I'm talking to or for myself or for whatever I'm doing you know, and, and then, you know, for me, that comes up as, oh, I don't, I don't remember that, you know, and then that's my, that's my kind of red flag. Oh, shit, you know, <laughs> I'm doing it again, you know, but part of it is, is, you know, learning about how that stuff manifests for you, for the, for each person, it's different, it's gonna be different for everybody. You know, for me, I think that's a big one where I just am not able, I don't, I don't know how to be present. I still don't. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, even simple things like remembering someone's name when I meet them, right? Like, I think that's part of, for me, at least, I think that's part of just being checked out from, from being, um, from allowing myself to be in, in any kind of relationship, right? So like, I think, you know, keeping it super simple, like just simply meeting somebody, hey, I'm Sergi. oh, you're Mark. Okay, great, nice to meet you. You know, like for me, I'm like, I'm out. You know, Mark's over here, who? What's your name again? What's, uh, uh? like this inability to, to acknowledge that this other human being is there and I can give some attention to that person. Uh. And it's okay to do that. <laughs> You know, so I, that's really hard. That's been a really, really hard struggle. And I catch myself a lot still, you know, doing that kind of thing. And it's really, 
I have to be very intentional when I go out in the world of, of, you know, practicing, you know, making eye contact with people and being in that moment, even the simplest moments, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, for me, it doesn't matter because it's all practice, you know, it's all good practice to, to kind of learn how to be in the present. And I think that's for me, the biggest thing is that I, I'm, I'm really bad at it <laughs> and it's really hard. And, you know, I, I think that's a, a big time coping mechanism for me, along with, you know, the stories that I told myself as a kid and things like that. But as an adult and understanding this a little bit more, like there's a lot of things, but I think that's a big one for me. I want to thank you for your vulnerability and lens into that place. Um, because I can really relate the, um, the reframe on that is that you became a master at disassociating and all the ways in which you can catch yourself now is quite masterful. And that's the way I've witnessed it in myself. Like, wow, you know, like I cannot be here, but nobody will know it, totally. you know, and like just how deeply rooted disassociation yeah. and, and the complex PTSD and the complex trauma really speaks to that because yep. we can carry a persona of like old soul, strong children, but it's really deep levels of disassociation yet showing presence because that's what the environment commanded and demanded of us. Yep. Yep. How many times have we heard that? You're an old soul, right? <sighs> big stuff because the saintly energy this presence the saintly energy like that was so a part of the upbringing of what we were supposed to do as children that 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 persona is so inextricably linked into our sense of identity and self that anything that it, it disassociation is so tied into like base reality in that soup yeah. And, you know, I'll say like another thing that's very common and, and if other people have noticed this, this is part of it is um, a deep level of exhaustion. Mm. So I remember when I was a teenager feeling just done. I can't do this. I don't want to take care of myself anymore you know, I'm done with it. Like that's the, this deep, deep level of exhaustion. And when you are in this state of neglect and trauma as a child, you have to take care of yourself to survive. Right. So that's, that's that, that's that, that's that part of it that you have to do it. So by the time, like I remember by the time I was 18, 19, when I was legitimately on my own, living on my own away from, away from family out of my mom's house and having to take care of myself, I was like, oh God, Ugh. now I have to learn a whole new skill set to take care of myself. And I was already so exhausted, deep, deep soul level exhaustion, you know? And all I wanted was for someone else to take care of me. You know, I remember thinking that if only I could have someone else do this for me, it would be great, you know? And that's not reality. And so you, you just learn and you figure out, but that's part of it, right? So if anybody out there is listening and you felt that, that's that trauma, that's that, that survival that we all had to be in, you know, coming through, it is 
extremely exhausting and not just, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. Exhausted. You know, it's, it goes to the mitochondria, you know, like all of it, like deep. It's a very nervous system regulation. It's how our nervous systems got formed. Sure. So that's where the, the, the familiarity of it is what I found so tricky because yeah. that kind of, it, it's almost like we're gaslighting ourselves in our training because what we've been taught to feel a sensation means I've come to learn is actually the exact opposite. Yeah. So I might've been taught, wow, that sensation, when I feel that that's called upliftment or that's called enlightenment. But really I've discovered what that sensation actually was, was deprivation or disconnection. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's all just really, you know, there's so many layers, there's so many layers and complexities to the trauma. And, you know, yeah. what I speak to a lot is just the very base level of, of the traumatic experience, the neglect, the, the, yeah. what we didn't get that a human being just simply needs as a developing human being. You need care, you need love, you need safety, you need food, you need warmth, you need the base, basic needs were not met. And, and then it goes from there, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Really great distinctions and really great foundation of, of really being able to kind of recognize and see and feel ourselves in new ways and to support yeah. listeners that some of these things could be happening within them and learning to recognize our own unique expressions, our own unique patterns from our lived experience and our lens. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a lot. And, you know, for anybody else going kind of maybe starting, starting out kind of unraveling some of this stuff, like, I just want to say like, you know, there are a lot of us that are, that are around that have been through that, that understand you. That's something that's really hard too, to feel like there's someone else who truly understands what you're experiencing and what you've experienced and what you might be feeling and how to, how to unravel that for yourself and to feel like you're not so alone. You know, that's something that's been a, another theme amongst the second gens is that we all felt so alone, like it was just us and it's not it's all of us. And there are people like myself who are here, who are, you know, willing and available, you know, to, to anyone else who might need to talk about it, who might need some clarity on stuff. You know, we are not the devil. We are not the, the bad guys, you know, to, to the younger kids that came after us. We are not, we have never been we want to see everybody be healthy and to, and to understand that what we experienced was not normal and not okay. And that there might be some pain there at some point in your life that comes up around that stuff. And, and luckily there are a lot of people talking about it like you, that's, you know, it's great Grinishan, that you're doing this stuff. It highlights so much of the similarities and, and, you know, what, so many of us have experienced and it's really important i think to to let it be known that <laughs> that we are not out here hating on you <laughs> you know what i mean like no no that's just not true we don't know you you don't know me you know these younger so many younger people don't know who i am you know and that's fine but you know 
we all very similar. Yeah, and what it means to really grow up kind of being prideful of identity and yet realize that that the identity that was formed included the narrative that those people were bad. And therefore that made me on the right path because those people were, and that that itself is not true. It's fundamentally a part of the lie that got painted to keep the next generations going. Yep. And when we can start to see it for that, again, it doesn't mean that the good that was gleaned doesn't exist, but we can start breaking apart the lies that have kept us apart, kept mm -hmm. us in silence, kept us yep. in our own unique trauma pattern, thinking it was just us alone, when yep. really it's systemic abuse that has been going on and on. And yep. there's people yep. before you that have gone through this and we're all here. We are the people of our community. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think that's really important to start to break down, to break down those lies, to break them apart and to not give them any more power, you know? That's right. And it, it, that's, that's a starting, a starting point. <laughs> One. Yeah. <laughs> And, but it's important. It's important to understand and recognize and realize that, yeah, you know, a lot of our, our, what we were taught was lies and was untrue and was, was harmful and purposefully so. And purposefully, purposefully so. And that's important. I think that as the stories come out, it's yeah. helpful to hear it. You're like, wow, I was always told this. And therefore the next 20 years of my life happen because I decided to listen to that as the truth versus make a phone call to find out what the real truth was. Yeah. And when the gravity of these choices happen, we can start to unravel that living trauma that becomes our personality. And, yeah, our and, 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 and then we can also make a choice to try to, you know, to show up honestly for others who need it. Honestly. Yes. You know, that's the key, in my opinion, is being able to be honest about it, you know, to say whatever it is, you know, or, you know, whatever, like I was saying before, to apologize if you need to apologize, but to do it honestly and to and to try to let go some of those those things that held us back from being true friends for each other, that held us back from from speaking up for someone else when they needed it, you know, right. What helped, what, what was it that, that, you know, why didn't I speak up more then? You know, like there's, there's a guilt around that stuff for, for a lot of people, I'm sure. Why, if I had only known, you know, but maybe, maybe not, you know, because, you know, I don't know. I want to believe that if I had known some of the shit going on when I was, in, when I was a teenager that I would have raged against that shit. I want to believe that I would have done that, but I don't know if I would have, you know, because you're, it was scary to do that. You know, that's right. We saw what happened to people who you did saw what happened and it did happen. You know, we were as teenagers, we were singled out. We were harmed. We were followed. We were, we were, um, Slandered, publicly slandered. Yeah, we were slandered. We were, I mean, you, you name it, <laughs> you know. And these things don't just dissipate like do. They live in the physiology like memory. And we remember, oh, that's unsafe. And so unconsciously we learn to mute and to shut parts of us down that we don't even notice we're doing out yeah. of survival mode. 
and there's, you know, and it's just the, for me personally, some things that were really painful and harmful to me personally were, you know, when I would hear that my friends were told that they were not allowed to be friends with me anymore, you know, and then they do that, you know, when they stop being your friend because they were told not to be, you know, that's a whole another, like, I don't know, like, I mean, how fucked up is that? You know, that you can't even be a friend to someone without getting them in trouble or you're, you're going to be in trouble. Who knows? Like, it's so, it was so awful, you know, and that hurts me a lot still to this day that that was, that was my reality was, was, you know, other, other people being told not to be my friend by the Yogi Bhajan or by whoever because I was going to lead them down the wrong path. Wow. I know. It's terrible. Well, I just want to say thank you for your voice. Thank you for the healing work you've done within your own self and your life and and shedding light, giving us an exposure into that. I I, I know it will help a lot of people that listen. Um, Anything else you want to make sure to get out there before we wrap up today's episode? No, I think we talked a lot about a lot of things. I mean, I think it's just important as people go through this stuff to find what you really love and to, and to own that, you know, to go with it, no matter what it is. You know, if you love being a Sikh, be a Sikh, but be a true Sikh. Learn the differences. If you love doing yoga, do yoga, but do something different than Kundalini, you know, whatever it is, if you're, whatever it is that, that, that you know makes you feel alive and makes you feel good in your body that's what you do that's what is important Um, Uh so you know and that's hard to that's hard to know for a lot of us just that simple simple little things like that are really really hard to know so gosh I thought that was just my own path Siri G meaning like when I turned inside and said what is it that I want what is it that I desire when all that came up for me was a resonance of shame, yeah. I was astounded and yeah. I just didn't understand because I thought I had such um, a, an independence, a sense of myself. And so to really come up to the reality that when it came down to it, I really didn't know. Yeah, me too. You're mirroring that back. Yeah. yeah, it took me a long time to really feel like the decisions that I'm making for myself and my life were mine. and not with a it with a hook from something else so that I could feel like I was doing something that was that would be acceptable you know and you know you yeah like finding those boundaries and holding to them and and you know it's really it's really hard and but it's important and I think like you know as people delve into therapy and things like that then you'll you know, everybody will find their, their way, you know, and it's, it's different for everybody, but it's possible. You know, I believe healing is possible. I believe like having a really good life is possible. You know, I believe that with everything you're, you're not, you're not just, you know, subjected to being miserable for the rest of your life. No, that's not true either. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's not the formula right um yeah so tell us about your song introduce us to uh to your song here 
Okay, so uh, I mean, I had like a gazillion that I could have chosen or thought of that would, you know, kind of sum up my metal world. This isn't a metal song. It's a ran rancid is a punk band. Um, this song is called Radio and it speaks to the music as a outlet, as the, as the, you know, the thing, you know, and that's something when I heard this song and there's, you know, so many, but when I heard this one, particularly, it hit me because for me, that's, that's what it always was. There was a safe space, headphones on, turn it up loud. I'm safe. Right. So that's what this song is about. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And here we go. Never been in love till I fell in love with you. Not all the good time was, I had a good time with you. Didn't want to feel anyone, yeah, right? Then the music's gonna allow for when the music hits, I feel no pain at all. place to go. Thank you so much. That was uh, very good. 
I really dug it. It really landed. And this has been the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I want to thank our guest today, Siri G. Lomenzo. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yes. Please like, share, subscribe, review on all podcast platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Guru Nishant.